I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorette. A couple of months ago, I attended a local event called Ask a Cop. The intention was that ordinary citizens could talk to members of the police force and we could ask questions about policing. Obviously, the goal was to make connections between everyday citizens and the police. I met several female police officers, and one of them started to talk to me about women in the criminal justice system and all of the unique ways policing affects women. She also talked about drug addiction. You know, I think about a lot of issues and how they uniquely affect women, and frankly, this is one that I didn't know much about. So this led me to the book, Addicted to Rehab. It was written by sociology professor Allison McKim. The book examines the process of rehabilitation in relation to race, gender, and socioeconomic status. Professor McKim compares two treatment programs, one which is linked to the criminal justice system and one that isn't. We also discuss the idea of women-centered treatment and the ways in which treatment is often intertwined with gender and racial stereotypes. So without further ado, here is Professor Allison McKim. Professor Allison McKim, welcome. Thank you for having me. In your book, Addicted to Rehab, you describe two drug treatment centers for women. And one is the Women Treatment Services, or WTS, and the other is Gladstone Lodge. And they both serve quite different demographics of women. Can you just set the stage by describing the two centers and talk a bit about the demographics that they cater to? Yeah, so Women's Treatment Services, or WTS for short, is in the criminal justice system, and Gladstone Lodge is in the healthcare system. And what I mean by this is that WTS WTS is funded almost entirely by criminal justice agencies like parole and drug courts, and it gets its clients through those kind of referral mechanisms. Meanwhile, Gladstone Lodge is a healthcare insurance-based rehab. And so like most rehabs, it's in in the private sector. It relies primarily on on insurance, sometimes self-payment. And to get clients, it relies on unions, employers, as well as just the marketplace in rehabs. So it has no connection to the criminal justice system or state welfare programs. um, And that makes it institutionally quite different from WTS. It was that difference between their relationship to punishment as and to the criminal justice system that made me interested in comparing them. So the one of the things that I found, which didn't surprise me too much, was that the client populations differed quite a bit at each of these places. So at WTS, the criminal justice rehab, the women were mostly low income and majority African-American um, with some Latina and a small minority of white women. On the other hand, at Gladstone Lodge, most of the women were working to middle class women and white, although there were um, a f- you know, about 10% or so of both Latina and also African-American women. And that has to do with the way it's getting its clients, you know, so it's using its union-based referral systems, which means that the women are not especially wealthy, like it's not a kind of fancy rehab like where celebrities would go. But it, it the women do have stable jobs and are able to access health insurance. So that makes them more privileged than the much lower income women who would go to WTS. You open the book by contrasting the stories of two women, Sarah and Denisha, and they have similar backstories in relation to why they ended up in treatment, but their stories really diverge in relation to how they entered treatment. So can you describe the experiences of these two women? Yeah, so Sarah was a nurse and took oxycodone-containing pain medication illegally 
and developed a, a pretty serious habit doing that. Eventually, she got caught by a suspicious pharmacist who was basically skeptical that her prescription was valid. And and he called the doctor whose name was on the prescription she was using. She had been using the, the you know, script writing power of a colleague of hers, a doctor. And he, when he got the call, he covered for Sarah, and, but he did also stage an intervention and urged her to go to rehab. So she got caught by an employee, a employer, or at least a, a senior colleague, and was pushed into rehab through family and work pressure that was mostly informal. Because she had insurance, she ended up able to afford a private pay rehab like the Lodge, and also had heard of that from recommendation from the doctor who, who caught her. Meanwhile, Donisha got to WTS also, I guess, with a as a result of brush a brush with medical authorities, but this was quite a different circumstance. So Donisha tested positive for an illegal drug while she was giving birth, and as is common in many places, Child Protective Services was called and they put her new baby into foster care and required her to go to treatment if she ever wanted to regain custody of the baby. And so that's basically what sent Denisha into rehab. And she ended up at WTS because it's the kind of program that gets enough public funding in order to support poor women like Denisha and enable them to get care with no out-of-pocket cost. So what WTS would do is sign women like Denisha up for various social programs and other kinds of things and then take what they called a rent out of, out of those benefits in order to pay for, for their treatment. So it, it, part of what I thought was interesting about these two women was that although they both were using drugs and they both broke the law in the process of doing that, they took very different pathways to rehab, as I call it. And I think that it illustrates a fair bit about how these institutions are kind of networked into larger patterns and power and authority. And that reveals a lot about the way we manage drug use, but also the different ways we manage women who break social norms. So what's really interesting to me is that both of the women were mothers. Yeah. And what happens to their families, I think, speaks to their different backgrounds, right? So Denisha's newborn went into foster care, um, which is so heartbreaking to me. So what happened to Sarah's children? Her children stayed living with her husband. So they were able to come and visit her and things like that. You know, I think you mentioned in the book that Denisha had also been in foster care herself. And, you know, to have that cycle continue with her own child is really sad. But again, it speaks to how poor women are treated versus women who have means. You know, even if their means are limited, they still get better treatment, even with modest means. Then, of course, if CPS is brought in, that can be, you know, quite serious. Yeah, I mean, Child Protective Services around the country is pretty harsh on parental drug use. So according to some studies, it's actually the most important factor that they use to determine whether parents are deserve to get keep custody of their children. And so they take, they can treat it very harshly, um, even recreational marijuana use. We're not always talking here about really hardcore abuse of, you know, opioids or what we might consider hard drugs. And so Child Protective Services often sends women into rehabs. So they are, although not officially a criminal justice agency, they act very similarly in that they govern mostly poor and non-white women, uh, that they focus on regulating drug use, and that they force women into these 
criminal justice treatment programs in order to regain custody of their children. So although it's, like I said, it's not officially criminal justice, it's still the state using criminal justice style techniques in order to manage women. And and I think this has been going on for a while, basically as a result of the war on drugs. So since probably the 1980s, you've seen this intensive focus on parental drug use, especially among mothers. So what this probably means is that, yes, a lot of the women at WTS would have themselves been in foster care, would have been in families that were under supervision of child welfare authorities. I don't know for sure about Donisha's past, but a lot of the women there had been through all sorts of institutions we use to regulate marginalized people and regulate deviants. So whether that's group homes, jails, prisons, mental hospitals, some people have called this the circuit, the way that especially poor women like sort of bounce through all these different kinds of institutions. And it's it's sort of the very bottom of the safety net and a very punitive version of it that catches people who are like at the most desperate um, and needy sectors of society. So how is the criminal justice system intertwined with this center, with WTS? We often assume that drug treatment is the opposite of punishment and that if we get more people into drug treatment instead of sending them to prison and jail, that will be reforming the system. So this is problematic for a few reasons. One is that the criminal justice system is actually super involved in drug treatment. It's almost the single largest insurer, or in some years it actually is the single largest source of payment for treatment and a source of referrals to treatment. So the criminal justice system is actually very involved with rehab and has been since at least the early 90s. So the rise of mass incarceration happened at the same time that the criminal justice system was getting really involved with the rehab industry and with sending people into drug treatment. So I, I want to sort of correct people's misunderstanding, I guess, that treatment is now only something we're thinking of as a response, as an attempt to reform, the, you know, the, the mass incarceration and to reform a system that's gotten out of control. These two things actually emerged together. So I wouldn't see them as separate phenomenon or intention, but as related phenomenon in which, the you know, as, as more and more people fill up our prisons and the criminal justice system starts to bring just huge numbers of people in through aggressive policing and um, prosecution techniques. We actually get the emergence of these new kinds of treatment programs that operate as kind of satellites to the prison. Um, and this is the sort of place that WTS is. It's an alternative to incarceration facility, but it's operating kind of totally within the orbit of, of the heart of the criminal justice system and prisons and courts and things like that. So that's an important context to have to understand why I wanted to know what would happen if you did treatment outside of the criminal justice system, which is what led me to select the lodge to compare to. And to think about what it means to do the same thing, ostensibly, you know, addiction treatment in these two very different ways. What does it mean to punish people as treatment or to do it as as healthcare? Partly because I want to bring a critical eye to the use of addiction treatment within the criminal justice system to see what we're actually using it to do. And if we think that this is going to be a solution to the opioid crisis or to mass incarceration, we need to have a better sense of what really goes on in these programs, how the criminal justice system shapes what they do, and what the experiences of people who go through them are like. So one of the interesting things that you explore in the book is how women who enter these centers, you know, they're trying to recover under the constant threat of actually going to prison. Yes. For most of the women there who have criminal justice mandates, which is like the large, large majority of women, they could get sent to prison or jail 
if they are, um, if they mess up in the program and the program decides that they need to be referred back to the court or to prison. And so the kind of threat of imprisonment is, is what helps make the place run. They, they need the threat of prison to force people into the programs and to force compliance while they're in the program. So it's kind of an extension of that system rather than an alternative, although we do refer to these places as alternatives to incarceration. Um, they end up sometimes having people involved and in under criminal justice supervision for longer than they would have if they had just served whatever the jail sentence was for their crime. So sometimes when we force people into treatment, they spend more time in the criminal justice system than they would if they just went to jail. And a lot of people, including myself, have argued that these mandated treatment programs actually expand, you know, the carceral system that although they're not prisons, they expand it in new ways. And, you know, we sometimes we try to do good with them, like we deliver services to people that we're we're doing so sort of under the shadow of of the prison and under the shadow of mass incarceration. And, and what one of the things that WTS did so well, which makes it kind of a really best case scenario of what people would like to see in criminal justice treatment is that it, it combined really therapeutic orientation, a gender sensitive orientation with a lot of social services. So, you know, women could get housing placement and vocational assistance and GED prep things like that. So it was kind of like a resource in which we're delivering social services to mostly poor people, but doing it through the criminal justice system. And the women at WTS found that they could get more services there than they could anywhere else in, in you know, in any other kind of state program. But, you know, those additional social services, you know, they're also included in the punitive measures that these centers use. So if a woman were to receive an infraction of some sort, she could also lose access to social services like mental health treatment following her recovery, for instance. I mean, for example, there was a woman that you mentioned in the book who was granted an early release and the counselors didn't agree with the decision to release her early. So as a form of punishment, they limited the social services that she'd have access to after treatment. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, so they could withdraw people's social services as a kind of punishment. And in general, I think this is a really bad way to deliver essential um, social welfare services to needy people because it basically sort of starts, first it starts to shift all these services into the criminal justice system while withdrawing them from outside of the criminal justice system. It means that poor people need to get criminalized in order to gain access to them. And then when they're in there, like, as you noted, they could, you know, be taken away at any time kind of as a threat of punishment. So it makes the whole kind of social safety net much more punitive. But the reasons that we get them expelled and sent to prison weren't always clear. It was a bit unclear. So that it was up to the staff's discretion, whether, at least for most cases, whether someone's infraction or series of infractions was, was serious enough to basically eject them from the program, to kind of expel them. And if they got expelled, they would either be sent back to parole, which might likely decide a woman would be incarcerated, or to a court, which might make the same kind of determination. And so the sorts of, you know, things like using drugs again rarely got women expelled from the program. But things like having a relationship, especially with another client, so having sexual relationships with another client could get women expelled from the program, as could certain kinds of things like refusing to take medication. I saw women get expelled 
for that, um, for committing another crime and getting rearrested. So that would and not surprisingly get uh, women expelled from the program and some and maybe violence. But I didn't see that much violence. I think it was officially on the rules that violence could get women expelled from the program with a kind of uh, an unsatisfactory discharge. But I didn't really see any of that there. So I would imagine that, that they might take that seriously as well. Whereas other kinds of things like, you know, the the woman who, who you mentioned was able to leave early. So the court no longer required her to comp- complete her sentence there. And they wanted to keep her in the program. You know, they had lost power over this woman, but they did have power over the kind of services they could give her access to. So they used that to basically extend their ability to govern her life, even outside of the actual criminal sentence, which was something that they thought was important. I mean, they thought it was important to use the services as kind of a carrot. You know, in this case, it just sounds like punishment for punishment's sake, frankly. I mean, if they truly wanted to help this woman or any of the women, actually, you know, they would make sure that they had access to all of these services that they need outside of treatment. Well, I mean, when you when you make treatment or access to health care or other social services a kind of tool for reforming people, if they don't, you know, that's used by the criminal justice system, if they don't comply, then they can be taken away because the whole thing is being done under this punitive model. You know, that's one of the risks of doing this kind of service provision through criminal justice. It's not that the people there don't need it. In fact, they, they really do. You know, the people who are criminalized are often very poor, very marginalized, you know, racially excluded. They have poor, you know, have had poor educations, come from dangerous or underserved neighborhoods. You know, they have a great deal of needs. We know that. But it's it's because we've incarcerated so many people, because we arrest so many people that, you know, we've, we've decided, oh, well, they have all these needs. We should deliver the, you know, them services through the criminal justice system because that's where they are. What's strange is that that coexists with the fact that we don't actually provide that many services to poor people and poor neighborhoods outside of the criminal justice system. We've, in fact, continually withdrawn those kinds of social services. So you mentioned a case in the book where there was one woman who ended up in WTS, or Women Treatment Services, which I should restate is that center is linked to the criminal justice system. And she was brought in for for what, you know, most people would think of as casual marijuana use. How do women like this end up in centers that are intended to, to treat serious drug habits? One of the things that's really remarkable is how little people's actual drug use matters in the kind of rehab that they end up in. So this is what you're getting at, that people would end up in the criminal justice-based rehab often who didn't really have drug problems, I think, or at least what most people would consider serious drug problems. So they were recreational users or they were involved in crime that, say, a parole officer or a court deemed to be drug-involved, but were also didn't have particularly heavy histories of substance abuse. And so they would end up in these criminal justice treatment programs like WTS, but really not fit what we imagine those programs do. So one case, a woman was smoking marijuana recreationally at home, and she her neighbor called the police on her. This was I think because they had been ha- they had had some prior disputes so her neighbor was mad at her and the police showed up arrested the the woman who ended up at WTS put her two children in foster care and she had to go to treatment and this is a residential treatment program for a full year so on you know that has more to do with her contact with the criminal justice system than any real reflection of her drug use and likewise, there was another woman who I call, I use pseudonyms for all of the women, so I call her Lena. And she went to WTS because she was paroled from a prison. 
and had violated her parole stipulations with a positive drug test. And when she went to WTS for an intake interview, which I saw happen there, they asked her all these questions about her history and including her substance abuse history. And she made this claim that she had only used cocaine twice, you know, and so she should have a short stint in the penal rehab. What was strange about this was, you know, so I, I assumed that the staff wouldn't believe this kind of a story. And after Lena left the room, I asked the intake counselor, do you hear stories like that a lot from women? And to my surprise, she was pretty willing to believe Lena's story that she had really only used cocaine twice and had been caught both times, which shocked me. And so I, I was totally baffled. And I asked her why parole would send a woman to WTS who didn't have a drug problem. Um, and the intake counselor was kind of like, well, he thought she needed structure. So that seemed to be enough to, to mandate her to rehab for six months. So both of these synergies, what they refer to as a women-centered approach. What are the tenets of this approach? It refers to broadly attempts to do treatment for women that takes into consideration what people think are women's gender-specific needs. Usually the way this happens in the treatment world is that means a focus on women's self-esteem, the nature of their relationships, especially with men and children, and then also an attention to questions of trauma or histories of sexual or domestic violence. So a lot of research has shown that women in the criminal justice system and women with substance use problems are more likely to say have had experiences of, of sexual victimization. They're more likely to have trauma histories and stuff like that. So people started to urge the correctional systems in the country, as well as drug treatment programs, to take more seriously women's differences from men, basically. that The ideas that it, behind it is that women come to drug use differently than men do, uh, that they get involved in crime through different pathways than men do, and that if you want to treat them, you have to recognize women's gender needs. There's a a lot of truth to the some of these these issues of like the differences between men and women and how they end up um, using drugs and their role in crime is is different and stuff like that. But the way that this knowledge has been institutionalized into programs like the ones I studied is more troubling to me, and that's because of the way. We punish women often quite severely in order to address these gender specific needs, or at least that's the rhetoric. So this ends up being programs that are therapeutic in orientation, but often quite confrontational and press women very hard to discuss traumatic events in their past, um, press them to change the nature of their relationships with men and children, and with the goal of making, you know, treating trauma and increasing self-esteem. What I saw at a place like WTS was that this actually legitimated a lot of this logic, legitimated many punitive techniques, conveyed a lot of stigma to the clients in these programs. So the idea that they had dysfunctional relationships with men, children, with sexuality, all fed into a logic that according to the um, one of the directors at WTS uh, meant that the women were basically so broken that they, quote, didn't even have a self yet. And this idea that women didn't have a self because they were so, you know, messed up from trauma and had such low self-esteem gave the program a great deal of kind of latitude in what they thought they could do to women and how much control the program should have over their daily lives. 
So it forced women to do all sorts of things from repeatedly confess their experiences with rape to disassociate with their children in the name of encouraging their autonomy and encourage them to adopt feminine makeup practices and grooming practices in order to engage in self-care. So I guess I think there's a bit of a disjuncture between the the hopeful you know, ideas behind the feminist reformers that wanted gender-specific treatment and the actual realities of what it means to do this, particularly in the criminal justice system. You know, these are women who are probably going through the most vulnerable periods of their lives. But from what you've described, it seems to me that the people who are in charge, you know, walking women through really traumatic past experiences, you know, experiences with abuse or abandonment. These people don't seem to be adequately trained to deal with that trauma. Well, most people who deliver drug treatment don't have really extensive training in psychotherapy or social work or anything like that. I mean, most across the country, most people Most states, I think, have requirements that substance abuse counselors only need a certification that requires like a high school degree, but not a college degree and a certain number of hours of training and on the ground experience. So most of these people are not highly trained. And I don't think that's unusual in either the private healthcare-based system or the criminal justice system. So speaking of their personal relationships and the relationships that they have outside of treatment, you know, with family or with children or, you know, even romantic relationships, the people who manage the centers, they generally view these relationships as harmful, right? I mean, the staff and the people making decisions about what relationships these women should retain while in treatment, they weren't able to, it doesn't seem like they were able to accurately distinguish between what was a healthy relationship and what was an unhealthy relationship. It just seemed like all relationships were viewed with a really broad brush and they were all painted as being potentially harmful. True. And there's lots of research that shows that if people are going to be exiting prison or reintegrating into society, that actually they need meaningful social relationships and that being able to shift one's identity to kind of a normal or non-criminal identity, they need those sorts of social and institutional support. So without family, without meaningful social connection, of course, they're, it probably is counterproductive. And it certainly is quite punitive. Like it, instead of just punishing crimes, for instance, it takes absolutely everything about a person, you know, their most intimate feelings about themselves, their sex lives, their relationships with their children and puts that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify, whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the, we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Under penal supervision. Can you talk a little bit about the monitoring at these centers, especially with WTS? You know, I know they have random drug tests, which is, I think, expected. Mm -hmm. They also monitored other things about the women, like, for instance, whether they had a cup of coffee. Yeah, from what I can tell, it is pretty common. So drug tests for sure are common. That's a very, very typical part of criminal justice supervision for people who are living outside of prisons. So including in these Uh, mandated rehab programs like WTS or on probation or whatever. So drug tests for sure were very common and they were required by the criminal justice system. So they were basically doing the drug tests kind of as agents of the state in order to catch women and and threaten them with punishment, more severe punishment than they were already receiving. And then in terms of some of the other kind of surveillance of like their consumption of caffeine or... (laughs) 
that seems a bit variable. I mean, I think certain hardliners in the abstinence-only treatment world would say that caffeine and nicotine are all substances, and so if they should, you should sort of go, get off of all of them. I don't know that WTS cared that much about it because they let them have smoke breaks. So that they would occasionally pick on women for having caffeine struck me as not really about the caffeine and more as a way to just exert authority and surveillance. You know, the level of surveillance that these women undergo, I found a bit shocking. I mean, one woman was punished for going to a corner store for a snack, and another was punished because she'd gotten a snack from a vending machine. You know, the environment just sounds over-controlling and, you know, kind of unpredictably punitive. Yes, absolutely everything they did had to be permitted by the program. So even really little deviations, like getting going to a different place to get breakfast would be punished. I mean, it's part of what it means to be in these really intensive residential rehabs. The idea is that these people cannot manage their lives. And so the program aims to, to have kind of a complete and total control over them. And if they violate that, they can be sent to prison. So the, the, the threat, uh, you know, kind of the, the penal threat behind it is, is really intense. So the women live under a lot of coercion. It sounds like the rules were fluid and unpredictable and the women just never knew what would get them in trouble. I mean, is that what you observed? It seemed like that to me sometimes, that some some behavior, you know, some sometimes the same behaviors would be treated differently. And so I, I think lots of things that WTS did kind of baffled me and that sometimes their practices, especially the disciplinary ones, like for, for infractions, seemed a bit arbitrary. And I kind of suspect that those sorts of contradictions aided in the institution's control over people, that you couldn't be sure of how the outcome of these sanctions or that they were looking to see you mess up to see how you would handle it as a way of sort of testing people, testing their commitment to recovery, seeing if they could get them to overreact or get emotional or become overtly resistant. It's, it's sometimes I think that, that that's what they, they were about, which sort of explains why in some cases they let things slide and other times they didn't. So how does WTS compare to Gladstone Lodge, where there's no link to the criminal justice system and where women have, you know, more means, frankly, or at least access to insurance? Was there the same level of surveillance? So one of the important things that the listeners should know about is that Gladstone Lodge, like most of the healthcare-based rehab programs, was very short in how long people stayed there. So they were only there for one month if they were lucky and had good insurance that would pay for a full four weeks of treatment. And what that means is that the, they just didn't have a lot of time to get in, to, you know, to do that kind of surveillance to take over everybody, you know, the entirety of someone's life. And they also didn't really think that the women there needed it. They basically just didn't think that their clients were as messed up as WTS thought their clients were. And so they were less interested and less able to do this kind of total policing of people's personal lives. They did do some policing of like the, they weren't allowed to smoke, for instance, and they weren't allowed to have candy in their rooms. So some of those things are similar that strike me a bit like they're features of what it means to live in some kind of institution that's attempting to reform you. And what, you know, that, that there's a, in no matter the, whether it's criminal justice or in the healthcare system, there are some similar practices in the kind of control of daily life and people's bodies and their consumption habits. So I want to go back to an example that you gave of a woman who, for all intents and purposes, was doing everything right. She'd gotten a job, she'd gotten business cards printed, and she was ready for early release. But despite all of this, her actions were viewed with suspicion from the staff, and she was painted as being manipulative. 
booth. How common was this for women in WTS? Well, I, I'm going to be annoying here and say that I can't really answer that because I didn't study enough rehabs and I can't quite say that it's generalizable. Um, so they were skeptical of women who were very career oriented, especially when that lessened the kind of um, control and surveillance that WTS could exercise and when WTS staff felt like it undermined women's commitment to the therapeutic aspect of the program, which was really important to the staff there. So at WTS, delving into the self, uncovering trauma, discussing one's relationships, these sorts of things were like the heart of treatment. It wasn't about getting a job or even really getting sober. It was about this really deep work on the self. And so women who were career oriented ended up in sort of conflicting with what WTS staff wanted them to do. So people like Sophia and Kate who had jobs but then got in trouble for being too focused on work were examples of that pattern. I don't think that this is true in all rehabs. My sense of what other people, especially those who studied programs for men, report is that in those programs, getting a job is an important step and one that signals normal. So signals that, that you're becoming a kind of like normal, responsible person. I think that might actually reflect differences in gender ideology. So the message to men is kind of like grow up and get a job, basically. And the message to women is like, oh, you need to work on yourself and you need to like increase your self-esteem and you need to like engage in self-care and, and you need to become more independent of men and children and that kind of stuff. So those are different messages about the nature of addicts in and ones that sort of are imbued with all this gender uh, gendered assumptions. So their reasoning for discouraging too much achievement, I guess from their perspective, is they don't want women to overextend themselves, right? But from your description of some of the reactions to women who had made some achievements, it just seems like it really goes beyond protecting the women from themselves. I mean, but isn't part of being successfully independent being gainfully employed? So for these women, what would be the markers of being successfully independent for the staff? That is a good question. I think the kind of independence that they cared about the very most was a sort of emotional autonomy. Women who were independent from other people in an emotional sense. So what they were especially worried about was something that often gets called codependency, in which women, um, or it's stereotypically at least women, it's, are in need of external validation and so have relationships that are codependent. And, and so this is part of the logic they're using. It's a common kind of self-help trope, but it's been really influential in this gender-specific drug rehabilitation for, for women. That's a version of independence that's much more psychological logical than it is, say, financial. And I draw on the work of people like Nancy Fraser and Linda Gordon, who charted the history of the idea of dependency and its relationship to notions of citizenship and gender and stuff like that. And so they they basically make the argument that at one point in, in sort of the colonial history of the United States, most people were dependent and dependency was seen primarily as like social or financial or legal. And it wasn't really considered a pathology. It was just considered the normal status of most people. And as time wound on and, and independent citizenship was granted to white men, suddenly dependence started to look pathological for men, but it was assumed to be natural for women and inevitable for women for a very long time. What you see in the, you know, kind of 1980s and 90s in the debates about 
welfare and so-called welfare queens is that suddenly women's dependence, especially women of color, is treated as not just a kind of financial burden on the state, but bordering on a kind of like personal pathology. What I see in these drug treatment programs, in the, at least in the criminal justice system, is this version of the sort of pathologically dependent poor Black woman has become almost entirely based on a psychological notion of dependence and not so much on what we might think of as like being dependent on the state um, as like the discourse that was used in welfare reform. So that means, I don't know, that, that it's somehow over time we care more about we've started to think more about dependency as a feature of an individual self and not as a financial relationship. And that's what WTS was operating with. Like they, they weren't opposed to women having jobs and officially they were supposed to help women, you know, with their vocational plans and help women get GEDs, other stuff like that. But they definitely subordinated it to the main cause, which they thought was this kind of therapeutic work on the self. So if you didn't have yourself straight, you couldn't get anything else worked out. So women had to work on themselves before they were able to do things like go to school or get a job. It does seem very out of step with conventional American notions of what like the poor should be doing and what responsibility means. That's part of why I wanted to highlight how the discourse about addiction and especially gendered ideas about women's addiction actually you know, has real consequences to the way we manage poor, marginalized and criminalized populations of people. Some of the cases that I read about in the book were a bit upsetting, right? Mm-hmm. At times there seemed to be very little generosity from the staff, especially when there were examples of some women who were being mocked by the staff, you know, mocked for their appearance or mocked for mm-hmm. what they ate. I agree. It was upsetting to me. And um, I struggled for a long time. Why would they do this? And how do I understand why this makes sense to them without just depicting these people as like crazy and evil, you know, which is a bit unfair to them too. Like a lot of them, if I talked to them about what they thought about the women in the program, what they thought about the criminal justice system or about women's position more generally, they would sound very sympathetic. They would say, you know, they would talk about the injustices of mass incarceration and they would describe how the women were terribly abused in their life and that they needed to be told that they mattered. They held on to those things, especially, you know, in the kind of like official representations of the program. When I interviewed them, they would say things like that. But then in practice, when they actually had to make decisions about real women's cases, they were much meaner. Um, and, and, And so it... Like I said, I struggled with this. How do you depict these people, you know, and make them make sense? You know, part of what we should do as sociologists is to, even if you don't agree with people's actions, at least show how it emerges from particular contexts and like why for the point of view of people in that position, this is like a sensible line of action to take. So this is something I struggled with for a long time. And I, one of the conclusions I came to was about the the fact that WTS was a punishment compared to Gladstone Lodge, where they were not as um, nasty to the women there and not as derogatory in the way they described them. So the fact that it's a punishment, I think does just change the nature of what they're up to. And it brings in all this additional stigma. It gives the program a lot of power. And degrading the women ends up, I think, inevitably being part of of a penal institution, even one that has a lot of sort of therapeutic language and ideas circulating in it. And uh, that was that's partly about maintaining the staff's authority, also about the way we've defined addiction for poor black women in the criminal justice system as this these kinds of like totally pathologically dependent people. And so 
that that's that's like a pretty heavy and stigmatizing thing to put on someone. It basically suggests that there's nothing worthwhile in who they are and in their lives and in their relationships. And that opens the door to just say, you know, you have to be a different person and nothing you say about your own needs or your own life can be taken seriously. And you have to, you know, completely remake yourself, um, which turns out to be very punitive. You talk about how they use something that's called a degradation ceremony. What exactly is a degradation ceremony? So that's a classic notion from a sociologist named Harold Garfinkel. And he wrote this famous short little paper in the 50s, I think, about the process of the degradation ceremony. So he meant to include the way lots of social institutions kind of use these little rituals to lower people's status and to convey that they are like a subordinate or lower stigmatized group of people compared to others. So this would include, you know, the way prisons would say shave people's heads and put them in uniforms or the way that a court would put handcuffs on someone and have them taken out and this sort of the ritual of proclaiming a sentence and all these sorts of things that especially penal institutions, although I imagine other organizations might use it too, but basically kind of little rituals that have that are used to convey that someone is kind of descending in status as becoming a lesser person. And so WTS definitely did this. When women entered the program, they had to go through a process that WTS called induction. And that was a delousing shower that was observed by staff members. So, you know, they would have to get naked and wash themselves with anti-lice soap. This They didn't do this kind of thing at Gladstone Lodge. You know, even though both organizations would have reason to fear lice infestation, like neither of them want lice infestation, they didn't force women to go through that kind of a degrading process at Gladstone Lodge. And that I do directly attribute to it, the WTS's location in the criminal justice system. It cared a lot about signaling women's lower status, whereas Gladstone Lodge did a lot of work to try to save the women in its program from stigma. Because, you know, being labeled an addict might be seen as a stigmatizing identity, no matter whether you're in the criminal justice system or in the healthcare system. But they, they, at the Gladstone Lodge staff were trying to kind of redeem women and to give women a access to being respectable and respected social identities. And so they didn't engage in the kinds of degradation ceremonies that I saw at WTS. Can you talk a bit about how women's roles as mothers, especially in the case where, you know, they become pregnant? I know there was a case where one woman did become pregnant. Can you talk about how this is dealt with and how it's viewed in, in these centers? Yeah. Yes. All the women who, who became pregnant, it was a problem. The staff saw that as a sign that women weren't committed to themselves. And, um, and as basically a symptom of addiction that they were so dependent on men that they were having relationships and that, or that they were so dependent on affirmation from children that they were going to have a baby. So they tried to encourage women to have abortions. And if women decided to keep their babies, for the most part, they had to leave the program and they would be transferred to another facility. But there aren't that many alternative to incarceration programs or treatment programs that accept pregnant women. Or parenting women. This is like a, there's a real shortage of such places. So, you know, there, there weren't, that would be very hard on the woman to leave and she would have to start all over again. And, you know, it, it, it could turn out very bad. So I thought, I think they actually put a lot of pressure on women to have abortions, which, um, would be troubling to lots of, lots of people out there, I'm sure. And, and certainly continues along history 
of the criminal justice system devaluing poor women's motherhood. You know, that's really troubling. I mean, in the book, there was one woman, she discovered that she was pregnant during treatment. And one of the other counselors said that, you know, thinking of the idea of her having a baby was causing him nightmares. I mean, that's a lot of stress to have nightmares. <laughs> well, they officially weren't allowed to have, um, you know, pregnant women or there. There was this one woman who was allowed to stay her due date was after she was to be released from WTS. So they kind of made this exception for her. But she caused all these problems because her pregnancy sort of threw into relief their strange model of autonomy. You know, it excited women, that the other women there, that she was going to have a baby. It even excited the staff who were kind of, you know, like, oh, how are you doing? And they treated her nicely. And so the the director you're talking about, I, I call him Marcus, was trying to get people to like, to sort of, toe the line and to to not dote on her and to not encourage having babies and he, and so you know i think the very fact that women have children posed a problem for WTS's model of the like perfect reformed self and so having a woman who's actually pregnant there like really stressed him out <laughs> So I want to talk a bit about Gladstone Lodge and about how race and class fit into the treatment. So you mentioned that race and class were excluded as a part of the treatment. At least many of the tropes that you'd find in centers where they treat more women of color, they didn't exist at Gladstone Lodge, right? Mm -hmm. And that the women themselves, in some ways, were excluded from the sisterhood, the sense of sisterhood at Gladstone Lodge. What do you mean by that? Um, so at Gladstone Lodge, they used a kind of classic 12-step method that would be familiar to anyone who who knew about like 12-step programs. And one of the things that relies on is the creation of fellowship among the addicts and, and or alcoholics who are part of these organizations. So th that means a kind of, you know, addicts helping other addicts, a kind of camaraderie, both in in, you know, how far you've sunk and in the process of recovery. That's a big part of those programs, the kind of social support that people get. And so Gladstone Lodge needed to, to foster this among the women there. And they had various techniques to do this, including, you know, having women tell their life stories. They used the language of fellowship all the time to describe the women. They had them do things together in order to try to sort of have people identify with one another's problems. But it was very hard for the black women there to fit into this fellowship um, with the other women. And and so there, they were a minority at Gladstone Lodge. They were only at most, I think, two black women there at any time. And although the staff members didn't treat them particularly differently from the white and Latina women, the other clients did. And so I saw a lot of racialized practices of exclusion and sometimes overt racism directed at the black women there. For instance, you know, black women were often alone during the sort of social downtime at the lodge where, you know, where they would say eat alone at lunch or they wouldn't participate in some of the casual hanging out that happened 
during time between groups. And so that really prevented them from joining the fellowship and I think from getting the kinds of benefits of camaraderie and social support that they were supposed to get. And because the staff at the lodge sort of refused to see this problem and refused to think seriously about the sort of racial experiences that people were having, that they didn't do anything to stop this, to help women there. I think that's something that they could have done a lot better was to to take seriously that black women would have different experiences in the program. So also this is somewhat related to race, but each of the centers had a different approach in terms of what they felt was the central problem that needed to be addressed. So with WTS, the problem was the whole woman, right? The the entire woman needed to be fixed, right? Versus Gladstone Lodge, they focused mostly on the addiction itself. Well, so WTS required women just to do so much more. The treatment was way, way longer and everything about a woman's life became fodder for treatment. So, you know, as we talked about whether she drank caffeine or whether she feels bad about her body or whether she has what her relationship with her children is like and whether she has been a victim of sexual violence and whether her family has a long history of dysfunction. All those things became part of the woman's addiction. And so that means the program basically takes absolutely everything about the person and shoves it into their definition of addiction and thus blames the woman and her pathological dependent self for all of these problems. One of the graduation ceremonies that I went to for WTS, the executive director wrote in the pamphlet for the the program for the ceremony that the women at WTS were addicted to punishment or addicted to pain and punishment was uh, the actual quote. And you can see through that language, you know, she's seeing all the bad things that have happened to this wim- these women, including things like being victims of gender violence, but also poverty and dropping out of school and a whole variety of things. It's the result of women's own addiction to punishment. They're seeking the, their own destruction. The real problem behind all these things is women's selves. And so it ends up blaming women for a whole range of social problems and suggesting that we can fix those social problems, poverty, sexual violence, whatever, by reshaping women. And that's, I think, what's most punitive about its version of addiction, that it it suggests that these women need to be under the control of, you know, the carceral state, as academics like to call it, and that these women are completely to blame for their marginalization. One of the things that I, I feel like I, I didn't say enough of before about the kind of comparison is that the if addiction at, you know, at WTS is this like huge problem of the self, this like pathological dependency, at Gladstone Lodge, that it was really just drug use. You know, they wanted people to stop using drugs. Whereas WTS wanted women to like remake themselves into these perfectly autonomous, you know, liberated women or whatever. And that ended up entailing different kinds of practices. But more importantly, for the purpose of this kind of question about race, is that it it invokes different racial stereotypes. So the women at WTS, regardless of their race, were kind of tarred with a racialized, stigmatized version of addiction that invoked all these stereotypes about the so-called welfare queens that invoked especially stereotypes about black women. Whereas at the lodge, this this sort of very narrow version of addiction is just like substance abuse, uh, didn't carry as much 
racial baggage with it wasn't as stigmatizing. And because they applied that to all the women in the program, even the black women who came to the lodge didn't suffer the same kind of stigma that the black women who came to WTS did. The organizations end up racialized, not just because of the population of people who go there, but in the way they think about addiction. And so because the women at the Lodge, who were African-American, had jobs. You know, they were often union members with stable jobs. The staff sort of saw them as decent people. And, and but they, the staff would have also told you that the people who end up in criminal justice programs like WTS were totally messed up and needed to be punished and were whatever. They used a lot of racist stereotypes like that they were on the dole or that they had no motivation, that they were entitled, that they were like just trying to work the system, those kind of things. And so the at, at the lodge, they kind of believed the stereotypes about WTS that the WTS staff themselves kind of believed. One of the more disturbing elements of this whole person approach is the way that they view women who've been victims of domestic abuse. You know, they blame the women, in a sense, for making choices that led to their being in these domestic violence situations. Yeah, and that they kind of have such low self-esteem that they want men to abuse them. So then the solution is to coast course women into treatment programs on penalty of prison instead of to deal with whatever the more systemic, what I would think are the more systemic and actual roots of gender violence and men's power over women. So to use the language of addiction to understand everything about poor and marginalized women's lives inevitably individualizes what are social problems. You coined a phrase. Governing through addiction. Can you describe what governing through addiction means? I coined this term governing through addiction to describe what these programs are doing, especially WTS. And I use that idea to describe the way that we use the concept of addiction and treatment to manage a whole array of social problems. So when we think that we can, you know, improve employee performance or address gender violence by sending addicted people to treatment, we are governing through addiction. And my book ultimately is very skeptical about the usefulness of of the idea of addiction for understanding such a wide array of social problems. And and I want us to be cautious about turning to addiction as an explanation for everything and thinking that treatment, especially treatment within the criminal justice system, can solve these much more complicated problems. And I I saw treatment fail to do that at both places. And at WTS, that came with an incredibly punitive edge, one that legitimated the criminal justice system's control over poor women and furthered all these racial and sexist stereotypes about poor and non-white women. And so in my caution about using addiction is not to say that people don't ever need treatment, but that we should be cautious using that term to encapsulate absolutely everything that can go wrong in someone's life or in society. So overall, what was your conclusion? How do we make improvements to these programs for women? My first and probably hardest to accomplish form of advice would be to remove treatment from the criminal justice system's control as much as possible. I would like to have a world in which people could access treatment, including poor people, outside of being forced to do so on penalty of going to prison. So that would require enabling access through the healthcare system. You know, to some extent, 
the Affordable Care Act, so-called Obamacare, did expand people's access to treatment through health insurance. But the treatment system is still pretty stingy. Health insurance doesn't really want to cover residential treatment. There's not a great range of options for people who don't want to do kind of traditional 12-step or other kinds of like therapeutic abstinence-only models. Even if we shifted more treatment to the healthcare system, we would still have, I think, some serious limitations in the in the way treatment gets delivered, in, as you mentioned, the training of the staff who works there. But that would be my, my first and most important suggestion, would be that I think the criminal justice system distorts the treatment process. I think it conveys a lot of, the involvement with the criminal justice system conveys a lot of stigma, involves really punitive kinds of control, but all of which I think are badly suited to helping people recover and are badly suited to helping people include, you know, and women in particular who have issues with things like violence and trauma. So that would be my my first suggestion. I do think that it would be great to have more treatment options for people, including harm reduction style options that don't require abstinence and to have medication-assisted therapy, which is only used, or at least primarily used for opioids. But given the scale of death from opioid overdoses we're having these days, it's even more essential that we get this life-saving kind of treatment that doesn't require people to go through therapy, that doesn't require abstinence only. I think we can save lives that way and, and do a lot of good. But that does require changing the norms in the treatment community, which are very oriented towards changing people and requiring abstinence. Professor Ellison McKim, this has been really illuminating. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. It was really a pleasure and thanks so much for having me. 